Thanks for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community. And I hope you might have had a chance to listen to Professor Nanette Mutri in her first of two podcasts with BJSM. She's at the University of Edinburgh and she's renowned for her work in psychology and physical activity in particular. And I can't help but allude to the fact that she is an MBE, a member of the British Empire, in case uh, you missed the first episode. I mean, she's close friends with the Queen. You can see her on the show called The Crown. Um, but she's with me in Vancouver today. And I'm going to ask you to please share with us your involvement with football fans and um, a great story on that front. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the Football Fans and Training Project has, one of, has been certainly one of the best projects I've ever worked with. My colleagues at the University of Glasgow, Kate Hunt and Sally Wyke, had the idea that men needed help with weight loss, that men would not, in, in, with their own motivation, turn up at any services that were offered for weight loss management. Uh, they were predominated by women, and in fact, we had a crisis of obesity in Scotland. Now more men were obese than women. So their idea was to use the venue of football clubs, so this is soccer in Scotland, in which the fans of the club would come to the football club to have lifestyle education. And our pilot studies showed that men wanted to do this hugely. The motivation that was created by offering them this chance amazed me. I have never seen it in any other project. So our pilot study results were very encouraging and we went to a full study funded by NIHR in which all of the Premier League clubs in Scotland, there were 12 at the time, instituted lifestyle classes for fans. And these classes ran over 12 weeks. The men came once a week and they learned about how their food consumption, in particular the size of the portions they ate, and how their physical activity could match together to help them lose weight over time. The physical activity components really revolved round the homework work they were given to add to their walking steps using a pedometer and using a graduated week-by-week -week increase in both the volume and the frequency of their walking. The goal was that by the end of 12 weeks they were doing at least 3,000 steps more than their baseline on a daily basis but we know that for weight loss guidance, we wanted even more than that. So we were guiding them to four or 5,000 steps, eventually, in a graduated way, more than their baseline step count levels. And this worked very well in combination with other activities that they were encouraged to try out in their local communities, uh, in, in combination with the groups of men themselves meeting together and doing other activities. Of course, five-a-side football or small games featured in that they loved football. But the thing that carried them through more than anything else was their motivation. I, I've never witnessed such great retention of participants over time. You know, n around about 90% of both the intervention group, which comprised almost 400 men versus the control group, which comprised a similar number of men, turned up for reassessment 12 months later. You know, in, in health research, that's a very high retention rate. They loved 
going to their football club. They loved being taught by the coaches. They were delivering these sessions, not the researchers. So a step back and the, the rapport that coach, coaches can have with the men was just great to witness and they made it fun experience for them. They loved going to the training pitch. They loved going in the dressing room. They wore the kit of the club. Everything about it just was a motivational experience for the men, kept them involved, and want, they then wanted to help their own club by doing the best they could for themselves. So that is a very difficult uh, set of motivation to replicate. Other sports have tried it with success, and, and I would encourage anyone that has got a sport with a good fan base where the fans are really motivated to turn up for their club, that this could be a route for sport itself to now help people with healthier lives. Yeah, congratulations. And that's the 2014 in Lancet. And uh, I'll ask my close personal friend, Richard Horton, to let us share some of that material in the BJSM blurb. And um, I just can't help thinking whether you created a premiership table of the fans and who did the best, whether they could get their teams higher up on the rankings. Ah, yes, a very good question. Everyone involved in the world of football wanted us to take that competitive ranking approach, not only between the clubs in the Premier League, but between individual men in each place. And of course, this would be driven then by ego motivation. So this is where psychology comes to play its part. So ego motivation wants us to do better than everyone else. And that's our way of seeing how we're getting on. We see the ranking list. So for every winner in those situations who's at the top of the list, in our case, there would be a load of people below that who were not. We persuaded them that that wasn't the best form of motivation. Instead, we tried to focus much more on task motivation in which people get better than they themselves were the week before. So you increase your step count a little bit. You you have a better handle on the portion size of the food that you're having this week compared to last week. You reduce perhaps a unit or two of alcohol this week and compared to last week. And that task motivation is the one that we know is long lasting. Well, you're not necessarily comparing yourself to other people, you're comparing yourself to what you did last week. There's always a little bit of eco-motivation involved in a group. We, we're with each other, we see what each other's doing, but we were emphasizing, do better than you did yourself last week, and then after 12 weeks, try to sustain that for a whole year. So we didn't have ranking lists, and we won't have ranking lists, I don't think, because that doesn't sustain people's behaviour change. Nanette, to be clear, it was a 12-week intervention and then one year for follow-up main assessment, which means that the control fans had to wait a year before they could get to the venues and smell the lockers and smell the uniforms and smell the grass? Absolutely, yes. So that's part of the motivation. This control group had to wait a year before they were allowed to have the intervention. And they were there. We, we, we hardly lost anyone in that process. And of course now it's very scalable. So the, the Scottish Professional Football League ha have now got their coaches trained and these programmes roll out three times a year at every club, not only the Premier League clubs, but the divisions below that. We now have it for women also. And we did a follow-up study of the first uh, cohort of men to go through and 3.5 years later, their physical activity is still higher than baseline. Their weight loss is still 
better than baseline. It, they did creep up a little bit, and that's sometimes inevitable in these kind of studies, but they had not put all the weight back on uh, that they had originally lost, so there was good evidence the physical activity was a main part of them helping to maintain that weight loss. And there was good evidence of mental health benefits, self-esteem, confidence, uh, body image changes that were all in the right direction. And then we went on to study this in more detail with European football fans in a study funded by the European Union. That's just finished. And again, we showed increases in physical activity. And I think here the important thing was we had a lot of biomarkers. We didn't have blood analysis in the Scottish version. And all the analyses of the bloods are showing that even modest increases in physical activity result in what we'd expect to see for improved health through biomarkers. And, and these findings are just coming out now. What we're less good at is actually changing sedentary behaviour. And many people will think, of course, if you increase physical activity, automatically decrease sedentary time. Not so. In some of our studies, we have shown that, uh, particularly pedometer use, because people might get up at the prompt of their pedometer and say, I need to do uh, a thousand steps today. Uh, and what they're replacing is sedentary time. But we didn't find that in the, particularly the European fan study. So we're probably replacing walking and more moderate activity with light intensity and not actually touching the sedentary time. And I don't think we know enough yet about how to intervene with decreasing sedentary behaviour as opposed to increasing physical activity behaviour. So our whole world of research needs to look at that in more detail and work out a lot more interventions that prompt a decrease in sedentary time, perhaps alongside interventions that we know work to increase physical activity. So just so I've got that right, they're spending the same amount of time sitting, let's say, watching TV, Netflix, if we make it concrete, but their light activity time is more purposeful with striding walking. Is that what we're hearing? Yes, I think that's where it's happening. So whilst we see modest increases in physical activity, we don't see decreases in sedentary time over a year. So where is the change happening? It's changing probably from light activity, moving to more moderate activity, rather than sedentary activity moving to more moderate activity. And we don't have a whole podcast on this, but where do you sit, um, if I can use that word, um, <laughs> on this debate about sedentariness? Because at one stage it was worse than smoking, and then other papers were saying, well, you can sit all day and go for a run. Well, we're still in the middle of developing this field, I think. I think it was always an overstatement to say that sedentary time was the new smoking. We didn't have evidence of that. We do know that inactivity is equally risky as smoking, but that's not sedentary time. So inactivity is not meeting the guidelines, if we put it that way. Inactivity is not doing sufficient activity, whereas sedentary time is a behaviour. It's when we're sitting down, and that doesn't have a strong an evidence base yet. And then we've had some very interesting papers recently showing that the disbenefits or the risks of high levels of sedentary time can be attenuated by quite a lot of activity. And so my issue here is not very many people can do that quite a lot of activity. And that's in excess of 60 minutes a day. So that's twice the rate of the public health guidelines. 
Not many people can do that. If they can, well, that's fine. But if they can't, then we have to pay both pieces of behaviour some good attention. We have to pay attention both to how long we sit and how long the bouts of sitting are and how much activity we can do during the day or in special occasions uh, in our leisure time. And Annette, you keep reminding me of things. So you mentioned 60 minutes a day to mitigate that sitting at your computer all day. Not that I'm nervous about that. <laughs> um, but uh, the Weekend Warrior paper, you'll know well. And so why don't you share your thoughts on that? Yes, I mean, I think all of the guidelines show that however you can achieve your 150 minutes is good. Um, there might be for some instances, and I would put mental health into this category, in which more regular activity is probably better. So something every day, even if it's a small amount, 15 minutes, is better than nothing, and then your whole 150 minutes at the weekend. For probably cardiovascular disease and probably mortality, it doesn't matter, but for certain things, mental health, and probably diabetes and how we deal with sugars in our bloodstream, and I'm not an expert on that, but I know enough about that area to suggest that that needs more regular stimulation from regular activity than other things. So I don't mind how people accumulate it, but for good mental health, I think something every day, even if it's a small amount, is better than nothing. But we've danced around food in, in different ways, and uh, so football fan study, I think the primary outcome was uh, weight loss, and you can touch on that. Please share with us what the food advice was, because people would be asking you know, what happened in that success story. And what are your thoughts on this position where some people argue that you can't outrun a bad diet? And for the listener who reads, I have shared my bias with, on that topic, but we'll hear from Nanette, who is the expert. Yes, the, the football fans in training uh, study did have weight loss as the main outcome. The European football fans in training study had physical activity and decreased sedentary time as the main outcomes. And so, yes, what, did, what was the advice? And the advice remained the standard dietary plate that we use in the UK, at least to educate people about the different food types that you need, um, protein, carbohydrate, vegetable, fruit, etc. Um, but I think the critical thing was to get a handle on the portion sizes and that's what the plate did for the men in the study and they were astonished that you know two potatoes was quite enough or that a, a small piece of meat was quite enough uh, and that's where the real change came in terms of their understanding of the portion size uh, rather than the different segments of the plate uh, and I know some people will disagree with that but that was the standard dietary advice that, that we used uh, and is in the UK and can you outrun a bad diet well you know we have debated this in in our own group and we think that physical activity often needs to be disentangled from its role in weight loss uh, whilst I've loved being involved in these studies um, just to put physical activity into the role of weight loss is not great because even a small amount of activity brings you a host of benefits 
that are not related to weight loss. So I'm always working against that idea that the only role that physical activity can have is in weight loss. Indeed, recently in the UK, we've been debating whether food labelling should include if you eat this chocolate bar, you will need to walk for X hours or run for Y hours to get rid of it. And I think that would be a wholly negative approach. It's negative mes messaging about physical activity. And it's physical activity as a punishment. So I want to see physical activity put in a much more positive way than that and to get benefit, you know, and Coke and many other um, people that sell soft drinks, uh, sell them not to suggest that in 10 years you'll have some decreased risk if you take this lovely product, but they sell them for some immediate energy boost. Now, we need to learn from that kind of social marketing approach. We need to say that a 10-minute walk at lunchtime will boost your mood, will help you feel better, will clear your head, you know, will help you sleep better. These immediate gains are some of the messages that we're not quite getting into the public domain yet. Um, we know so little about it in physical activity in comparison to other lifestyles that people have genuinely worked at for years, like helping people stop smoking or changing food patterns. So we need to get onto that and learn how to message about physical activity better. Really quick ones, I promise, and feel free to be concise. Daily Mile? Aha. Uh -huh. So the Daily Mile is a lovely uh, idea which was created by a primary school head teacher in Scotland whose name's Elaine Hindle, and I think you'll be able to link to a podcast of hers. And she simply observed that her school children aged between 5 and 11 uh, did not look that fit. They did not look as if they were concentrating well in the classroom. Indeed, she thought they looked maybe a bit overweight. And aside from their two hours of PE, so in Scotland every child gets two hours or two periods of physical education mandated in the school curriculum and that was happening but a week uh, she went beyond that she said no we need something that helps people lift their mood so actually taking up on that uh, idea that I've just hit, said she allowed her teachers to take their school classes out of the classroom at any unscheduled point of the day and walk around the school playground. And that happened to be about 15 or 20 minutes walk. It wasn't precisely a mile, but she coined the phrase daily mile. And lo and behold, the children liked this. They got out, they chatted to each other. Uh, the teachers liked it. They reported when the children got back, they were concentrating better, they were behaving better. They appeared to get that energy boost. And the Scottish government then went... That's a great story. Let's have that as policy. And it indeed is policy for all primary schools to do as well as they can in producing a daily mile for their school children. The evidence base is a little behind that anecdotal story, which is very convincing. And so we're just building that evidence base. And the more I hear about it, the more convinced I am that it may just be working. But the real test will be over time. You know, if you, you require children to do the same thing every day for all of their years of primary school and maybe their school playground isn't that exciting and the views aren't that great, 
it may have disbenefits. It may have disbenefits because people start doing the competitive thing that we've talked about. And there'll always be a winner and there'll always be a whole class of losers behind them if it starts to become a race. So it has to be carefully managed. And I'm really keen to see the evidence base about what it actually does for school children uh, coming out and, and helping convince me and others that it really is a good thing. Have you heard of a guy called Dr Andrew Murray? <laughs> I do know Dr Andrew Murray because he is my PhD student and he is studying the benefits of golf, the game of golf for health. And I've thoroughly enjoyed working in that project with him. And he is an advocate of all positive things, physical activity, including the Daily Mile, I'm sure, and in particular at the moment, golf. But many things, and he is a talented man in many directions, running over continents and educating people as he goes in, in his world. And the very last one, do you think the Queen has adequate physical activity and walking? I'm not sure about her walking, but I know she has adequate physical activity and her activity of choice is horse riding, I understand. And this makes her very agile. On the day that she presented me with my MBE, uh, she was on a little platform because she's quite a small woman and this allowed her to be at eye distance from most of the recipients. But the person behind me was in a wheelchair and the Queen, aged 92 at the time, I think, stood down from the platform to award that person with their... Um, MBE and stood back up on the platform completely unaided and many people in their 70s uh, never mind their 80s or 90s could not do that so she was very physically able and that helps her do her job I'm sure Thanks so much Nanette what a fantastic place to finish and the Queen is most welcome to the physical activity lab here with Guy Faulkner at UBC when she's visiting her grandson and great-grandchildren um, any time. So thanks for joining this BDSM podcast. Do feel free to share with your friends if you like it. The app is a very handy way to listen to it very conveniently on your phone, the BJSM app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you get the chance to have plenty of walking in your day, but not too briskly. <laughs> <laughs>